First thing I want us to notice from our text, number one this morning, a lesson of the Passover is that death is coming to every home. I want you to look at some interesting words in our text that actually create for us a problem. It says in verse 5, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Not of the land. So it's not like just the children of Egypt are going to die. All the firstborn in the land are going to die. That includes Israel. And if we needed further clarification, we see even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, who were slaves in Egypt, Israel. God says judgment is coming to every home. One of the things that we studied uh, in the first couple of sections was that Israel was guilty of sin just like the people of Egypt. It's not as if Egypt was a bunch of really terrible, wicked people over here, and then Israel was a bunch of saints, faithful to God, faithful to the teachings of their elders. This was not the case. Israel was not faithful to God. Israel was not in a good place spiritually when God chose to redeem them. In fact, when we read, and and we will, we'll continue to study the account of, of their deliverance, we see that even when they get on the other side of the Red Sea, a bunch of them, their hearts still ain't right with God. And all they can think about is, I wish we were back in Egypt. Their hearts were in Egypt. Their minds were in Egypt. They're, they're, they were born and raised in Egypt. And they were guilty of sin just like everybody else. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned. And so Israel... We see that God is judging everybody. He's judging Egypt. He's judging Israel. Everybody in the land, the firstborn, must die. And then we see this, what seems to be greatly contradictory statement of verse 7, that not even a dog is going to growl at the people of Israel, and that everybody will know there's a distinction between Egypt and Israel. We have a very clear judgment of sin. God declares that the wages of sin is death. So it's no question here that God is dealing with sin. And because of that, Israel, the people of Israel were very similar to the people of Egypt, both by nature and in their practice, sinners. God says it's time to judge it. Thus, the death of the firstborn was coming to everyone in Egypt, including the slave behind the mill. The New Testament truth is found in Romans 3.22-23 where it tells us there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet it's true that God had purposed to redeem Israel out of Egypt. But how would he do this? God could only do it based on righteousness and justice. God is a holy God. I want to introduce a statement that you need to get in your heart and your mind. He is a holy God who will never, cannot, will not 
provide mercy at the expense of justice. God is a merciful God, but he will never provide mercy at the expense of justice. God doesn't just take his children's sins and say, well, they're my kids. I'll sweep it under the carpet. I'm just going to be merciful. He can't. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. He cannot, will not, has never, will never provide mercy and grace at the expense of justice. The wages of sin is death. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some, some uh, other places scripture teaches us about God. That God is, that, that, that he is just in all of his ways and that he does not spare his wrath. We learn in 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10 that when the angels sinned, God spared them not. In Ephesians 2 and verse 3, we are told that we Christians are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And God made no exception for his own son. In one place, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was made sin for us. And then later, the scriptures tell us, therefore, God spared him not. So if God didn't spare the angels, if you and I are creatures of wrath like the rest of mankind, and if when Jesus was made sin for us, God spared him not, what makes you think God's going to spare anybody? He is a righteous God. You see, now we actually have a very real conundrum. So what's the solution? It's a solution that only the great I am, he that has all wisdom, the God of heaven and earth, could ever come up with. And that answer is quite simple, a substitute. There is a substitute for our death. In Romans 5.20, it says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yet this grace that abounded, this mercy that was given, was not given at the expense of righteousness. Every demand of justice was satisfied for Israel. How? By the substitute of the Passover lamb. The death that was coming to their homes instead was applied to the sacrificial lamb. Death did come. It came, brothers and sisters, to every house. Their death, though, and the death of the firstborn, it was transferred to the death of the lamb. It is an absolute picture of our death being transferred upon Jesus. Which brings me to the second point this morning. The Passover lamb was a shadow type of Jesus Christ. Those of us that are studying Hebrews on Sunday evenings will eventually get to Hebrews 10, where we will learn that the Old Testament customs, such as the Passover and many others, pointed forward to Jesus Christ. It even uses the word, they were a shadow of the substance. Here's what that means. The Passover wasn't the real thing, but it was a shadow of the real thing. 
You could learn what the real thing was by some examination of the shadow. But the substance is Jesus Christ. So the Passover, it's a shadow, it's a type of Jesus. It teaches us some things about our Savior. What can we learn about Jesus as we study the Passover? Look what 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 through 8 tell us, if there needs to be any type of settling this in our mind and our heart. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Christ is our Passover lamb. So what can we learn about Christ and the Passover lamb that is important for us to understand as Christians? The first thing being point three this morning that we want to see is that it is the Lord's Passover. Exodus 12, 11, it is the Lord's Passover. Let me tell you what that means. It's not yours. It's not my Passover. It has great implication to us. God has called us into the celebration of the Passover. But we're not the ones that... Israel didn't sit around and think, hey, how are we going to get out of this, folks? Death is coming because we're sinners. We got an idea. Let's sacrifice a lamb. God said, this is my idea. This is my Passover. This is my design. And all too often when we discuss the... uh, the implications of Christ's death, we are so focused on its application to us. What does the death of Jesus mean to me? And listen, it should mean a lot to you. I'm not saying it shouldn't. But we often miss what I would say is even more important than what it means to you and what it means to me. What it means to God. And I want to explain that this morning. Why is it not called our Passover? Why is it the Lord's? It's not ours, it's his Passover. That means it's for him. You know, the first reference to a sacrificial lamb, a substitutionary lamb, is found in Genesis chapter 22. And you're going to remember in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is on the way up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. And just as he goes to raise the knife to slay his son God speaks to him from heaven and says, hold on a second. I now see that you have not withheld even your only son from me. In other words, everything that you have, you have you've been by faith, you've proven that I, that I come first. I don't want you to slay the boy, Abraham. And God had provided a ram, if you remember the story, caught in the thicket that became the substitutionary sacrifice in Isaac's place. I want you to look at one verse that's interesting in this storyline of Genesis 22.8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It's not that simply God would provide the lamb, but that the lamb was provided for himself. The sacrifice is for him. The Passover is for him. Why? The sacrificial lamb that was provided satisfied God's justice. Satisfied God's law. 
It was a fulfillment of the payment of death. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb meets the requirements of God's righteousness while simultaneously providing redemption for God's people. There had to be a payment that was paid. God couldn't just let us go free. The payment was death. And so on one hand, it satisfies God's wrath. It satisfies God's judgment. On the other hand, it was literally the payment that redeemed us out of the grips of the devil, if you will. We were by nature children of wrath. And as we grew and began to sin on our own, and consciously rebel against our own conscience, we became children of wrath by choice. And we needed redeemed. There was a rightful payment that had to be paid so that we might be set free out of the bondage and slavery pictured here as Egypt. The bondage and slavery of sin. This is why the Passover lamb was for God. To provide the path to satisfy his judgment, to satisfy his wrath, to satisfy the demands of death while simultaneously redeeming us and paying our debts. It really vindicates, I, I, I cautiously use that word, but it vindicates God's character. Because what kind of God would God be if he just took our sins and said, well, I love them. And so I'm going to take their sins and sweep them under the carpet and I'm going to make everybody else pay for theirs. What kind of God would do that? See, it's an attack on his character. But the blood of the lamb and the fact that there had to be a death that was paid and ultimately in our situation, brothers and sisters, that Passover lamb being Christ Jesus himself, God's wrath was satisfied and he is justified in making us right with him. The Passover was for the Lord. We see this kind of truth that the Passover has two applications. First to God, second to us. In the Day of Atonement, uh, there was a ritual that was part of the Day of Atonement where we read of two different goats. Why two? The text is Leviticus 16, 7-8. Here's what it says. He shall then take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. One was the aspect of the goat or the lamb sacrificed for God. It was for the Lord. This lamb would be sacrificed, and this was the blood that would ultimately, after the sacrifice was prepared, that would be brought in to the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled on the mercy seat. The mercy seat is another word for the Ark of the Covenant. It is where, for a period of human history, the manifest presence of God dwelt on earth. There, with the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Holy of Holies. When that lamb or that goat was sacrificed, the blood wasn't brought to the people. It wasn't for the people. It wasn't for us. It was on behalf of the people, but it wasn't for the people. It was for God. It was to satisfy the wrath of God 
and it was to pay for sins because the debt of sin is death. The first one, the first goat was for the Lord. The second was a scapegoat. You know what a scapegoat is? It's when you blame somebody else for what you've done. That's what a scapegoat is. It's the goat that gets all the blame. We're going to take all the blame. We're going to throw it on this person. That was actually part of the Day of Atonement. And that scapegoat would also have blood applied to it. And then it would be sent out into the wilderness to die on behalf of the people. We see the Passover does have this twofold significance. On one hand, it's for the Lord. Secondly, it's for us. But I want us to understand the significance of, first and foremost, it's the Lord's Passover, folks. It is the Lord's Passover. It ultimately speaks to His righteousness. We're going to deal with that again here in just a moment. I want to read Romans 3, verses 24 through 26. And, and, and see how uh, this Passover is the Lord's and it's about his righteousness. We, uh, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, there's that word, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as the propitiation, or that's another word for atonement, by his blood to be received by faith. Notice, this was to show God's righteousness. Not his mercy, not his grace, but his righteousness is why the blood had to be shed. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We see the blood of Jesus was for God's righteousness. It was that he might be just. No, my children did not go free. While I set them free, it was not free. My righteousness demands that wages of sin are death. And God devised a plan, brothers and sisters, to pay that debt for us and redeem us in the process of setting us free. The fourth thing I want us to see this morning is that the blood must be applied. We see some of the instructions of the Passover in verses 5 through 7 of Exodus 12, where it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. So the lamb was to be killed. Death had to be inflicted either upon the guilty transgressor or the innocent substitute Death was the penalty. But after the lamb was slain, the blood was to be applied to the doorposts. It could be said this way. It's not until the sinner applies the blood of Jesus that it avails for anything. 
a savior provided is not enough. We must accept the savior. Apply the blood. There must be faith in his blood. And faith is a personal thing. I have to, by faith, apply the blood. I've got to take that blood and I've got to recognize there is nothing that will shelter me from the wrath of God but the blood of Jesus. And just as they had to put it on the doorpost and get in the house, I've got to, I have to recognize it's the blood of Jesus, the only thing that I can plead that will hold back the wrath of God over my life. It is that blood that cleanses me and by faith... I trust in the blood of Jesus. I trust in the final work of Christ. And because of that, I trust that the wrath of God has been satisfied over all the wrongdoing in my life. Not because of me, not because of anything I've done, but only because of the blood. I must take the blood by faith and apply it to my life. Apply it to my relationship with God. It's not enough to just know about it. It's not enough to acknowledge the sacrifice. They had to take it and apply the blood. The next thing I want to see this morning is righteousness can demand full payment only once. The Holy Spirit will help you understand what I'm about to share with you. You will find a certain degree of peace in your Christian life that you may have never found yet to date. Righteousness can demand full payment only once. Let's just say you legitimately owe me $100. And that I legally have the power somehow, some way to force you to pay up. I force you to pay that $100 and you pay the $100. And then afterwards, I choose to make you pay it again. That would be evil. That would be illegal, unlawful, unjust. You see, righteousness allows for full payment one time. If the Holy Spirit can help you understand this in the depth of your heart, you'll understand how wrong it is when we think that somehow the blood of Jesus isn't enough to keep us in right standing with God. Righteousness can't even demand a little bit more. It's not like the blood plus this. Full payment has been paid. When you see this, here's the irony. You will then understand that God's righteousness is on our side. It's not just God's mercy that's on our side. We tend to think often as people that, that we, we, we lean on the mercy and grace of God and, and we just hope that the mercy and grace of God somehow keeps his righteousness from pouring out wrath on us. We hope that his mercy and grace outweighs his righteousness. When you understand that full payment has already been paid and that righteousness cannot demand more than full payment once, you understand the righteousness of God. It's on your side, brother. It's on your side, sister. The debt has been paid in full and a righteous God cannot demand payment two times. It is done. It is paid. Even God's righteousness is on our side. What an incredible thought. God knew what God was doing, brothers and sisters. 
Did I already read Exodus 12, verses 12 through 13? No? Exodus 12, verses 12 through 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When the angel of death saw the blood upon the houses of the Israelites, he did not enter there. Why? Because death had already come to that home. Death, the death of the lamb, the death of the substitute, it had already come to the home. The payment was already paid. Now the proof of it was that the blood was on the doorpost and they had by faith been all total obedient to God, but it was clear to see when you saw the blood on the house, well, death's already happened there. Death's already occurred. The payment's already done. This is why when God sees the blood, he passes over, brothers and sisters. This is why the blood is our only true refuge. It's not merely God's mercy, but His righteousness, which is now on the side of His people. And God's justice. Justice demands acquittal of everyone whose debt has already been paid. God's justice is on our side. His righteousness is on our side. It's interesting we find the word righteousness elevated in Romans 1 verses 16 through 17. You're going to be familiar with the very first part of this uh, passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. Most of us know that passage. Look what the next words say. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Not because it shows God's mercy and shows God's grace and shows God's love. Which it shows those things. Don't misunderstand me. But the thing that the apostle was most fascinated with. The gospel demonstrates the righteousness of God. That in setting us free, he still maintained his righteousness and his holiness. And the debt was paid. God did not just erase something. He paid for something. God did not just let us free. He redeemed us. He paid the cost in full through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God's eye was not upon the house. It was upon the blood. Didn't matter if it was a big house, nice house, rich house, well put together house, religious house. Didn't matter at all. Didn't matter if it was a poor house, small house, things falling apart in the house. There's only one thing God was looking for, the blood. And there's a lesson there, brothers and sisters. We are all saved the same way. It is through the blood of Jesus and only the blood of Jesus. And at that degree, we are all level at the foot of the cross. God's not impressed by the size of something, by, by our wealth, by our wisdom. Not, but God, nor is God 
unwilling to come to the poor and to the needy. He comes to all of us the same way. There is one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is what makes the family of God all equal at the foot of the cross. It is the blood and the blood only that God is looking for, brothers and sisters. Now, the natural man says, this just doesn't make sense. I mean, why smear blood all over the doors? The natural man says, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, how can you really be saved by just having faith in Jesus or his blood? In 1 Corinthians 2, we are told that the things of God, the things of the Spirit, they're foolishness to the natural man. That that he does not discern them, nor can he discern them. It takes the heart of faith to understand My last two points this morning are about faith. Number one, redemption must be received by faith. Speaking of Moses in Hebrews 11, 28, here's what it says. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And Moses was the leader. The rest of Israel followed suit. By faith, they kept the Passover. I want us to examine the faith that it took to keep the Passover. Keep in mind, the Passover was never a word, folks. Like, it's, it's, the, it's the most historical, well-known um, uh, ritual and event in Jewish history. And so, we talk about it as if you know, since Adam was created, everybody knew what the Passover was. That's not the case. I want to put you, please try to put yourself into the life and into the mind and into the heart of Israel. And, and consider what God was asking them. Keep in mind now that Moses showed up many months ago and said, great news, God's going to set us all free. I met with him in the wilderness. And the people are like, yes, this is fantastic. And so Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh about it. Turns out Pharaoh doesn't care what God had to say. And Pharaoh says, now the people get double work. Get back to your labors, you slaves. And they make it even harder on him. He tells the taskmasters to make life worse for these Israelites. And the people, before any plagues ever even happen, the people are like, Moses, you lied to us. You said you were going to set us free. You said God told you. Moses goes to God, right? And he's like, God, now the people don't trust me. What's going on? And God says, there's, there's, there's a process here, Moses. It's not all going to happen at the snap of a finger. And God brings plague after plague after plague after plague. Nine plagues have happened by this time. And still, not only has things not got better, they've only got worse. Pharaoh's heart has got even harder And Israel's thinking, we can't trust Moses. They're starting to question. Now talk about faith. Now Moses shows up and says, look, I've I've heard from God again. He's going to set us free. Here's how he's going to do it. Next month, on the 10th day of the month, you need to select a lamb. The best one you got. Or a goat. But it needs to be the best one you got. Then you need to bring it to the house for four days. Take care of it. 
Treat it really well. Then on the 14th day, you need to kill it. And you're going to eat it at a feast. They had never heard of this feast. Like, why are we having a feast right now? We're still slaves. But in addition to the feast, you're going to take some of the blood from that lamb. Then you're going to rub it on your doorpost. And then after that, you're going to go inside and God's going to deliver us. Honestly, this is real, folks. You put yourself in the, in the land at that time, after nine plagues have come, none of them did anything. Here's what I want you to see. This required faith. And it's something you better learn about our God. He requires faith. We know the story. We know what happens. They did not. Now, God knew. God knew exactly what was going to happen. But you know what God didn't do? He didn't tell them. God understood the symbolicness of all of this pointing forward to his son, but he didn't tell them. He's like, these are the instructions, trust me or not. I will tell you the truth. I will tell you what you need to do, and I'll tell you what's going to happen if you don't. Death's going to come to your house because it's coming to everyone in the land. But it's up to you to believe or not. And you will find it still takes faith today. It takes faith. We will never totally, completely understand it all. Never. And that's God's design. It's not that God doesn't understand it. It's that he chooses to make sure we don't. He gives us enough. Do not forget, he had proven himself. He had did some signs and wonders. He had clearly demonstrated, obviously to a degree, Moses is hearing from God because Moses warned the plague would come and then the plague would come. And then Moses would talk to God and the plague would stop. The Israelites are just scratching their head like, then why are we still in bondage? I don't understand. If this guy's hearing from God, then how come we're not free? There, so see how there's this great degree of like God's proven himself, but there's still this degree of faith where it's like, I don't understand it all. I don't know why, why it works this way. And at the end of the day, we don't fully have to understand why it works the way it does. We simply need to know what has God said and do I choose to believe him or not? By faith, I have to believe in the blood of Jesus. By faith, I have to choose to take a hold of it. When it does not make complete sense to our natural minds, when we cannot answer every single, why does it work this way, we are faced with two choices. Refuse to believe it because it doesn't make sense, or believe God and simply obey. And the Bible says, by faith. They kept the Passover. It still takes faith, brothers and sisters. There is no other way. God will make sure of it. The last thing I want us to see this morning is that peace is only obtained through faith. And I will confess that um, what I'm about to share is not necessarily found in Exodus 12. But I'm utterly convinced of the truth. Put yourself into this moment in history. These were real people. They faced a real decision. 
They kept it. But no doubt many of them were troubled. I mean, they, they knew the plagues were coming. They'd seen the plagues. And they know death's coming to their house too if they don't get this right. And I want to share with you like three different scenarios of three different homes in Israel that night. I want to show you that real peace, it's only obtained through faith. Real peace, not a false peace. The first home that I want to share with you is a home that had false peace. The dad says, you know what? I am sick of this Moses guy. Who is he? There ain't no death angel coming. Hell's not coming to our home. We're not going to do this stupid ritual. Kill a lamb and eat it and put the blood on the doorpost. Are you kidding me? And he sits his family down and he assures them, nothing's going to happen. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be worried at all. Nothing's going to happen. We're good. We're safe. Just like a lot of lying dads do these days. Look their family in the eyes and lie to them. Nothing's going to happen to us. God's not a God of justice. There's, there's no real God out there that we're all going to answer to. And he lies to his children, but his children and family believe it. They go to bed in peace. I mean, they're convinced the whole thing's a sham. I got nothing to fear. All those dumb idiots out there thinking that we need to follow the instructions of God. And they go to bed in peace. We know the story how that one ends. They wake up in absolute terror as the word of God is always true and death comes to their home. And then I want to think about a second family where they've done the best they can. By faith, they have done everything. I mean, they have done it to the T because they did not want the wrath of God to come to their home. When it's all said and done, the blood is applied to the doorpost and the family comes in and the sunset starts to go down on the night. That firstborn says to his dad, Daddy, I am scared. Now dad looks at his son and says, I'm a little scared too, son. But we got nothing else to do but trust God. And we've done everything we know how according to the word of God and we're just going to have to trust God. And the reality is that that son and that dad, maybe even that mama, they never even slept a wink that night. Waiting. Possibly even looking out the door just to see if death's coming. And we know that in the morning when they woke up, while everyone else who refused to listen to God, the death angel passed over that home. Now here's a very important principle I want you to see. Their fear... Their fear had nothing to do with whether or not God passed over their home. God wasn't looking in there like, well, are they afraid or not? We're going we're to bring death to their home if they're afraid. There's one thing he was looking for. One thing only was the blood applied to the home. And I'm telling you, I've, I, I've, I've been doing what I do long enough. that I have, And there's two applications to this truth. First of all, death itself. I've been doing what I do long enough. I have sat behind, beside people that unless somehow they had me completely faked out, they had complete peace at death. And I believe it was as real as real could be. 
But I have set beside sincere, true Christians. We all knew we were going to heaven when they died. And still, when that moment came, they were terrified. Just that you don't know. You just don't know. What, what does it look like? How does it happen? It's just, you don't know. God, doesn't, God hasn't told us exactly what everything's like in this passing from this life to the next. Here's the blessed assurance we have about the blood. No matter how fearful they were, and no matter how concerned they were about the unknown, the blood was going to carry them to victory one way or another, and they were going to get there, brothers and sisters. That's the confidence that we have in the blood. We've got to learn to throw ourselves upon that and just trust in the finished work of Jesus. It's the only reason I've got confidence with God. My point, though, was that peace is received by faith. And there should be a third group in this story. And it's the family that not only by faith applied all that God had told them to do and applied the blood. But it's the family that also laid down at peace. And it ultimately comes and only comes by believing by faith and trusting the promises of God. Here was the promise. It was, there wasn't just instructions. There was a promise in the instructions. Exodus 12, 13, here's what it said. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, here's the promise. I will pass over you. When we can learn to trust the promise of God, it's then that we begin to go to sleep in peace. And I'm going to tell you, obedience to God and faith in the blood, faith in what Jesus did, trust me, it is enough. It is enough. But I've watched Christians, and here's that other application, I've watched Christians live so much of their life in fear. Fear that as a Christian, that somehow, if they're not perfect enough and righteous enough and holy enough, that eventually God's going to change his mind and pour out his wrath on them. May the Holy Spirit let us see the truth that righteousness can only demand full payment once. The payment has been paid. It's done in full. There is no more payment. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. And in those moments of my life when I find myself stumbling and sinning, I need to repent. I need to be broken over my sin. But I have to recognize the blood of Jesus, even then, it is sufficient. I am promised by God that I stand righteous before him because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. God has promised. The Lord Jesus has promised. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we've got to trust in the promises of God. And when we trust in the promises of God, it is then by faith that we begin to receive the peace of God. Amen. Deliverance from judgment is by the finished work of Christ alone. It ultimately does not actually matter how much peace that a believer has. The blood of Christ is enough. But I can assure you the aim of God and the goal of God is that we live in peace. And that comes when we understand the promise that God has given. When we by faith believe him and obey him. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 54 through 55 tell us death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death where is your victory? Oh death where is your sting? 
When we trust in the promise of God's deliverance through the blood, even death loses its sting. I'm going to ask our worship team to get in place, and, and, I'm, and I have some questions that I want to leave you with this morning. Question number one that, that we have to make sure of is, am I relying upon what Christ did for sinners like me? Am I relying upon the finished work of Christ, or do I feel like it's the finished work of Christ plus my works, my things, the things that I do? If it's the second, if you believe it's the finished work of Christ plus your works and the things you do, that's an attack on the righteousness of God. It's an attack on the blood of Jesus not being sufficient. And when we fall in love with the, and, and, and appreciate and grab a hold of the tremendous truth that it was all done in Christ and that the work is finished, we then begin to follow God and obey God out of appreciation, not out of obligation. I'm not trying to add to the payment so that somehow I can get to heaven. I'm just, I love God because of how good He is and because of how wise He is and because of the redemption that He provided to redeem me, to pay for me so that He could legally take me back as His own. I just want to love Him. I just want to serve Him. I just want to follow Him out of a sincere heart of gratitude. So am I relying upon what Christ did? Am I personally trusting in His shed blood? Has the Holy Spirit revealed to me my lost condition and my need for a Savior? And have I cast myself upon the finished work of Jesus? His shed blood. His death as my Passover lamb in place of my death. My debt paid in full by his sacrifice have i truly believed in him by faith have i applied the blood